Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for January 12th, 2017. The cloudy with a 100% chance of showers edition I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is here with us from New Haven, but I can see her because we're on video chat for the first time in months. Hello, Yay! Emily. It's making me feel all cheery. Hello. Uh, Emily's wearing a very, very, uh, very uh, cute Smirk-like hat. Smirk-like hat. Very, it's very <laughs> cute. John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation, um, cannot be with us in this most busy of weeks. He he had an unavoidable conflict. But that doesn't matter because Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent, successor to John Dickerson in that role, in fact. That's that's correct. Is uh, is here. Hello, Improver Jamel. upon that Hello. role. How about that? <laughs> that's like a very David Palazzi. Well, they're both they're both extremely natty University of Virginia graduates. Who, 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 extremely natty, very um, very polite, gentlemanly University of debonair. Virginia. Debonair. 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 Gentleman. Um, so they have so much in common. <laughs> On this week's GabFest, one of the most preposterously busy political weeks in memory. Probably we, there's enough for a dozen shows, but we can only do one. Um, so we're going to end up sort of uh, shoehorning topic into topic into topic. So our first topic, the salacious and highly unconfirmed allegations about Donald Trump and Russia. And we'll fold into that first topic. Trump's insane press conference and his uh, really absurd claim that he has now resolved all the ethics issues regarding his business. Then we will shoehorn uh, Jeff Sessions and uh, Rex Tillerson, our would-be attorney general and our would-be secretary of state, and their confirmation hearings into a topic. Uh, Then we will shoehorn Obama's farewell speech and our kind of ongoing assessment of the Obama Obama's political legacy this this week in our second of three Obama retrospective discussions. How did he change American politics, if at all? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, including an update on that exciting cocktail chatter we had last week. And for Slate Plus, uh, Trump's dalliance with anti-vaxxers. Ugh, ugh. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Plus, we have an announcement. Slate has a great event on January 25th that you should try to get to if you are in New York. It's called Not the New Normal, How the Media Should Cover the Trump Presidency. Join Slate for a conversation with top editors in New York about how the news media can and should proceed to cover the Trump presidency. The panel is going to discuss strategies they're implementing at their outlets, how journalists and media companies can play a bigger role in making sure that fact prevails over fiction in the coming months and years. And profits from this event will benefit the Committee to Protect Journalists. It's going to be hosted by Jacob Weisberg, chairman of the Slate Group and the host of Trumpcast. Uh, Julia Turner, the editor-in-chief of Slate, will be there with David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, Lydia Polgreen, the Huffington Post, 
new editor, and Jay Rosen from NYU is going to make introductory remarks. For wow, more, that's a great lineup. It is a great lineup. If I am New York, I'm going to be there January 25th. For more information and tickets, visit slate.com slash live. If you are waiting for me to say golden showers there, I said it. Now <laughs> let's not say it again. Let's get on with it. In a kind of an astounding story of Hall of Mirrors complexity that goes something like this. Throughout 2016, a dossier, to use the word of the day, a dossier apparently compiled, actually salacious and dossier are the two words of the day, apparently compiled by a former British intelligence officer made the rounds to media and Congress. This dossier alleged incredibly compromising relationships between Trump and Russia. First, elements of that compromising relationship. First, senior people on his campaign team were allegedly meeting with top Kremlin officials to plan election interference. Second, he supposedly had compromising financial relationships with Russians, uh, although I, I didn't see what those were supposed to be. And Third, and most salaciously, that the Russians, under Putin's direction, had compiled a blackmail file, a compromat. Comp- is that how you say it? Compromat? I think compromat is Compromat. Right. Uh, like compromat. It's a great word. A compromat. A uh, blackmail file containing, um, in addition to potentially financial information, evidence of sexual romps in Moscow. Uh, this dossier was widely known about, apparently, although not by me. Did you guys know about it? This was not circulated to me. Emily, did no, you know about it? I did it? not no. have it. Uh, so n- not we're not in the loop, but it was widely known. But it only became news when CNN reported this week that Obama and Trump had both been briefed about its existence last week. Following this, BuzzFeed and then later Slate published the entire dossier while disavowing any knowledge or any confirmation of it. This is a story about media ethics. It's about Trump's relationship with Moscow, about the tension between Trump and intelligence agencies, about God knows what else. We don't have any reason to know yet whether what's in what's in the dossier is true or not. Right, Emily? Right. I think that's right. It's uncorroborated. The MI6 British agent's name is Christopher Steele. I'm waiting for him to appear in this drama. It seems like his in, inter, his television interviewer book contract are nigh. And he, we know that American intelligence agencies have worked with him and viewed him as trustworthy in the past, but they haven't, as far as we know, corroborated anything in this dossier. And they briefed President Obama and Donald Trump on the information in it in a two-page synopsis they included in those briefings they did last week. And that was the news that CNN reported, which does seem important because some notion that it had to have some level of credibility in order to make it into a presidential briefing. And I think the other fact we should add to this is that the Guardian has reported that there were FISA court warrants. That's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Um, there was an application by the Intel folks, the American Intel folks, for warrants for um, three or four Trump campaign operatives. Those warrant requests first went in last July. Apparently, the court turned them down, said you need to narrow them. And the Guardian has reported that the warrants were issued in the middle of October. So we also just like don't know what all of that amounts to yet. What did they get out of that? Who were those people? And and how much of this is checkable? It seems like some of these allegations, especially the ones about the camp- campaign operatives meeting, that actually that either happened or it didn't. And then how hard or easy is it to go back and try to learn wh- whether that occurred? Jamel, if these allegations or some of them are true, 
do we know any more about Trump than we already did? We already knew he was a sexual predator. And the allegations actually, the sexual allegations are just like whatever. They're 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 not even predatory. They're weird, but they're not predatory. They're not uh, that weird even. They're, they're not even that weird. I agree. Of, actually, they're not even sexual in some sense. They're just kind of weird, weird agro-dominance. Yeah. yeah. Which, again, that does not surprise us at all. Uh, we already know he has shady financial relationships. It's already clear that he has a fishy relationship with Putin and Russia and that his, he has advisors who have exceptionally tight uh, or more relationships with Russia. Um, so so what news is in this? I think the revelation about the FISA warrants is news. I think the fact that the American law enforcement was interested enough in those connections between Trump campaign operatives and the Russian government to want to surveil them is significant. I think that if it is true that there were these very tangible connections between Trump campaign operatives uh, and the Russian government during the election, it then raises the additional question of what did Trump know about all of this? And that is very serious. The salacious stuff is like funny and everything, but these these hints and allegations of actually quite concrete relationships between the Trump campaign and the Russian government, that's the kind of stuff that if followed through, if investigations confirm and uncover more information can lead to something like an impeachment. Yeah, that won't happen. Emily, <laughs> uh, part of me thinks that this is the worst possible kind of information and attack to come out now. Because it was so easy for Trump to dismiss. Well, as, and to, to be outraged about. Yes, uh -huh. to be outraged yes, about and to make him seem to make him seem victim, to make him seem the target of a of a baseless, unsupported witch hunt, to co to confirm the thing that he's already saying, which is that the media is full of that media is unreliable, and therefore you you know don't trust this, and this ma makes it impossible or harder for people to trust other things in the future. Um, so, what's your thought on that? Well, I thought he used exactly that tactic pretty successfully at his press conference this week. And I didn't think the press did the White House press corps did a great job of pushing back. But I also think that <laughs> there is it's it's going to be tough for him to simply dismiss this as an attack by the media, given that it is coming also from the intelligence agencies and also that it just leaves all these really big questions. I mean, I think Jamel did a perfect job of summarizing what's new and potentially significant about this. And it's the kind of, you know, right now, this is rumor and innuendo. And that's the problem with BuzzFeed and I guess Slate publishing it. But the idea that it should be tracked down and investigated and that there's like some really serious questions here about the American president, which are so fundamental to the functioning of our democracy, that's stuff that like you serious folks in Washington on both sides of the aisle should want to get right. And there's going to be some pressure on them to try to figure it out. And, and then there are all these questions about the operating of our government, you know, Going forward, does Trump have the power to just end this investigation once he has his new CIA chief in place? Can the Senate continue on without him? Would they get into that kind of face-off with him? And then I can't resist a little bit of looking backward. I mean, when Jim Comey disclosed a lot of information about Hillary Clinton and her, that new tranche of emails, did he just treat this investigation of Trump as a totally parallel track that he 
didn't have any obligation to disclose and why was that? And I've also gotten a little bit obsessed with like what President Obama knew when. And, and that I think of as more after the election. I mean, Obama has tried so hard to be reassuring about this transition of power, but does that mean he doesn't take this seriously or does he not think it's his responsibility? Maybe he just feels like it's not his role in the democracy to um, do more than he is doing because he did order this investigation. Anyway, I just there are so many parts of this swirling around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you think, Jamel, given the politics of Congress and the Senate, of the House and the Senate, that there is going to be any appetite for a general investigation of this or is it going to sort of wither and we're going to step away? Yeah, I honestly don't know the case for absolutely not. And I think that case is pretty strong is that the Republican majority has this very expansive agenda that it has kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity to get through Congress. And even if Donald Trump isn't necessarily ideologically committed to that agenda, it is the case that its vice president certainly is. And that the fact that Trump is basically indifferent is, you know, may help them out that he'll sign whatever they send him. Why not wait? Why not wait until you get your tax cuts passed and your, uh, your Obamacare repeal through? And you you cut Medicaid, you get all that stuff through, and then maybe you think about it. But in the immediate short term, or even in the in the medium term, in like the next two years, I just I don't see the this ideologically driven Republican majority uh, acting against the president. So that's that's like the first the case that they won't. And I think it's pretty strong. The case that they may is it depends on how unpopular, how big this gets, and how unpopular it makes Donald Trump. It's entirely possible. That over the next several months or the next year, we get more information uh, that comes out about the relationship between the Trump campaign and the Russian government, if they exist. And I, I should say, I think that those – I'd be surprised if they weren't there, given what we know about people like Paul Manafort. And given how sloppy that campaign was, this 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 was obviously a campaign where no one really expected to win. And so my hunch is that they figured they could just do this stuff and in the end it's not going to matter because they'll lose. But now that they've won and Trump is president, uh, there's a whole new level of scrutiny. If, uh, if it becomes uh, a kind of massive political scandal, which I think it ought to be because like, it, it, you know, if true, it would be like one of the biggest political – I don't want to use the word scandal again, but like scandal is what I can think of at the moment in like recent American history, possibly in American history. But don't you think I, – I, so isn't there a way in which we've become immune to political scandal? Not that they – that because everything is a scandal, nothing is a scandal and because scandal no, is only something just, that happens – scandal is only that something that happens to the other guy. I don't know. Like I don't they, know. That, that, that <laughs> there will be – the president. what would it take for a Republican majority in Congress to – Go after if Donald no, Trump in a serious way. If I, if, if I can't if, think of what it, if, <clears throat> if what he's done so far has not caused them to even blanch. If, if tangible evidence comes out that the Donald Trump campaign collaborated with the Russian government to like leak documents from uh, the Democratic Party, I think it's conceivable to me that there is enough public outrage across, not necessarily from lawmakers, but from just like regular people, uh, that Republican lawmakers. Out of self-preservation, will act. I mean that 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 is and very possible. The whole 
I agree because the calculus is they're not loyal to Trump, right? And he's not loyal to them. What's holding them together is the agenda Jamal described and their fear of his base. If he becomes really unpopular and they're not afraid of him, they would much rather have Mike Pence be the president, like if that's the calculation. But I also think Jamel's right that none of this is going to happen right away and probably won't happen at all. It just is out there as a possibility that might slowly develop. I think it's really important, though, to hang on to the idea that scandals still matter. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the fact that Trump's announcement about how he's going to handle his business falls short of what every ethics professional in the government asked him to do. And there is all kind of potential for scandal and like true conflict of interest self-dealing that's going to come out of his mingling of his role as president and the Trump organization, which is going to keep making deals, which he's not really separated from. So there's that whole sort of you know, potential too. And the emoluments clause of the Constitution, while his lawyer has dismissed it at this point, it does still hover out there. And, you know, the ethics folks are saying that he's going to be in violation of that clause from the minute he takes office. And and it's worth saying in all of this that Trump is actually entering office very unpopular. I think at last at the the last favorability poll I saw had him at like thirty seven sixty, right? That like most Americans, including a good chunk of people who voted for him, just don't like this dude. And so I actually think that it's conceivable to me that there's a set of revelations and circumstances that make Trump not just unpopular, but like radioactive in a relatively short amount of time. Do you think if you, Emily, were uh, an advisor to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, would you say, focus on this this uh, Intel Russia stuff and on Trump or no focus on the huge public policy issues on the Obamacare repeal on the other bills that the GOP is going to try to pass through Congress, which are, which are terrible public policy and also likely to be unpopular when the public gets aware of it and, and actually harm people in a huge way, which, which of those two tracks should they focus on if they're going to, if they can only really fit pick one. Why would they have to pick one? I mean, they can do both. And I think the other thing is how much are senators like John McCain and Lindsey Graham and perhaps Marco Rubio going to help them with the Russia part of this? Because that's where you could expect some bipartisan pushback from at least the Senate. I do think it's super important to keep the focus on the policy prescriptions that are going to start unfolding, and especially the question of how you how they're really going to repeal and replace Obamacare. That's something the Democrats, I think, need to keep their eye on the ball. But it seems like we're just going to have both of these tracks playing out in Washington, not to mention there are going to be things that are going to start happening, like real events in the world are going to, as always, um, play out and affect how American politics develops. What do you think? Do you think they really have to choose one of those things? People have a limited attention span for what what they can pay attention to and what they want to pay attention to. And so I do think that, yeah, you, you sort of, you, you sort of decide here is our main line of attack and that's what we're going to focus on. So I think they have to pick one. If I were them, I would make it around the public policy stuff and around Obamacare in particular, but that's me. I I tend to think that there's bandwidth for both. So in terms of like national media strategy, I actually don't think it's really significant which one they choose because I think all the the real fighting and the real opportunities to push back are going to be happening district by district. It's it's the the effective response is going to look something like the Tea Party, right? Sort of like 
relatively small groups of people harassing their lawmakers. And that, you know, you can do that on any number of bases, whether that's the Russia stuff, why won't you support an investigation, whether that's Obamacare, why do you want to take away my health care? I think either way, uh, lawmakers facing angry people in their districts is going to gonna be effective. In- Although, but but in of those two, I think one, the why are you going, why are you trying to take away my health care is a much more effective right. Strategy just, and it's much because it's much more personal. People actually feel it. I, th- I think what the the presidential campaign does suggest is that in terms of national media strategy, pocketbook issues are probably going to be your best bet because the fact that Trump is such an aberration and so transgressive is helps bolster a narrative about him that may work in his favor. Right. Whereas people generally do think that he knows something about the economy and that he can help with jobs and continuously focusing on how those things are not true um, uh, may may actually undermine him in a really important way. But I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, think, I think there's evidence for both positions. And looking internationally, it is the case that the politician who beat Berlusconi in Italy was very much focused on pocketbook issues. And there's evidence to suggest that, yeah, you want to you wanna actually treat these guys like regular, normal politicians um, in order to in- deflate them a bit. Right. And, and Putin has certainly been weakest when the Russian economy was weak, when, the, when oil prices plummeted. His popularity also was in danger. Emily, uh, just going back to the dossier for a minute, are, wh- how... I'm not going to ask you whether Slate and or BuzzFeed, I should say, BuzzFeed and then secondarily Slate were right to publish it. I'm more interested in the question of how we as as citizens should feel about so much being made of private intelligence information and and the way in which kind of the leak leaking out of intelligence and law enforcement from both sides has become such a a weapon in politics. It I find it really troubling. Like it takes away the sort of ideally the non-political non-partisan nature of intelligence gathering and law enforcement which which is important for the republic and the way it, that has diminished because it's clearly intelligence being used so much as a as a political weapon worries me I think that's true, and it feels very Nixonian, and seems like um, J. Edward Hoover is his ghost is hovering over all of this. One thing I've been trying to piece out, and I don't have this, I'm sort of thinking out loud, but, you know, reporting of leaks from the intelligence agencies as they've played out over the last, like, six to nine months, in the Post or the Times or whatever outlet, there will be unnamed sources from an intelligence agency and then a big headline that, you know, says whatever that intelligence agent wants the message to be. So at one point over the summer, it was, you know, intelligence agencies say no Russia links to Trump campaign, or it was, you know, this kind of drumbeat of um, leaks and doubts about the Clinton campaign that uh, Giuliani seemed to be in on and behind. And the press, when it's getting those inside sources, treats that as like a respectable form of reporting, right? I mean, you might very well see those reports in mainstream media outlets. So then you get this dossier of intelligence that's really oppo research, right? I mean, it's by this guy, Christopher Steele. He has a background in intelligence, but it's not coming directly from the agencies. And it gets treated as not respectable for mainstream media to report until CNN reports on the briefing to the President Trump, which 
which that part of it seems fair to me. But I, what interests me is thinking about all of the rumor and innuendo in this dossier and how uncorroborated and shaky it feels. And, and what you were saying earlier about how this is like sort of the worst way to get this kind of information, it then makes me go back and think of all those media reports that are essentially the same thing. They're just given through unnamed sources with a lot fewer details. And so they seem somehow sturdier and more reliable. But now I feel like a lot of that really isn't because you're just chesting the judgment of the leaker who may well, as we're learning and seeing, have a political agenda. And it's making me wonder just about that whole way in which intelligence gets into the news stream. And um, I don't know what to do about it, but it, it is seeing the raw intelligence. I know this is a little different, but still seeing it. And it makes me think like, wait a second, how as a reader, am I supposed to judge but, when this is, you know, what's when you know, what's incredibly sad about you said, Emily, you and I are both old enough to Mel isn't because he's 12 years a old, baby. but yeah, you yeah. and I are both old enough to have lived through exactly this episode with the Iraq war and the Iraq war intelligence. Yes. Exactly the same story. The same thing. The same thing. <laughs> and yet here we are 12 years later and we're like, I'm so shocked to learn that right. this intelligence is out. not reliable and people are using it politically and the media has been suckered by it. And, and we, you know, every you know, time. Shame on us. But- shame on us, media. Well, I guess so. But on the other hand, we can't simply dismiss all intelligence. I mean, watching Trump do that over the last weeks and months has been. It, to me, very unsettling because because the um, intelligence agencies made a huge mistake about weapons of mass destruction during the Bush administration doesn't mean that nothing they come up with is true and that they're not good at their jobs in some circumstances. I just feel like these leaks are such a confusing way to get the information that it, it makes me feel like I don't know when to be like, yes, these are our you know, respected spies doing their jobs in the way that we absolutely need them to do and when to be like running from them because the leaks are politically motivated and seem unreliable. And it's worth saying just with the Iraq analogy that it is that that wasn't necessarily a case of the intelligence agencies just being wrong. It was also a case of political leadership pressuring intelligence agencies to find particular results. And that doesn't seem to be the case here. Right. Although no doubt in the Trump administration that will we will also get episodes of course yes yes, 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 yes. right but right now just to say i think jamel's right that actually the intelligence agencies it seems the opposite of their interest to be having Mm -hmm. this huge confrontation with an incoming president over incredibly Mm -hmm. sense right like they must in some ways their whole culture goes in precisely the opposite direction that this is the last thing they would want although that's true just to go to the political, the the case of Comey really and the the final email swat at Clinton, which was so damaging in the last days before the election, that was clearly there was some element of politics. Not that he was getting pressure from Obama to release information about Clinton, but that he didn't. He had gotten a ton of pressure from Congress earlier to keep Congress highly informed of this investigation. And so there, and he that was, worried was about leaks, and he was, right? and that political, and he was, yes, and he was also worried that Republican sympathizers within the FBI were going to leak this and and make the bureau look bad. And so that wasn't because the president was pressuring, but it was because of political pressure, at least informed by political pressure. After watching that press conference and sort of like reading over the transcript and like reading and reading and reading, 
it's very clear that nothing materially has changed whatsoever with Trump and ethics that like he basically went on television to say, I will continue to make money from my business and there's nothing you can do about it. And kind of covered this up with lots of artifice, but that, that's And really you it. should thank me for not taking a $2 billion deal with a guy in Dubai. And here are all these documents in folders that I say I signed, but actually I'm not going to show you any of them, which is sort of the perfect metaphor for all of this. I mean, we just need to keep watching this. I think, and I think of, of all the Trump vulnerabilities, I honestly believe this is the biggest one. The fact that Trump is openly going to use the presidency to line his pockets does sort of offend basic sensibilities people have about public service. And you asked earlier if I were Democrats, would I focus on Russia or pocketbook issues? I would focus on this as a national message that like Donald Trump is cutting taxes for rich people, and then using the power of the presidency to make money. That, that, that pile of folders, it was. I found that eerie because that is exactly the pile of folders I have in my attic where I keep all <laughs> – that is exactly how I store all my important financial information is in huge Are piles of manila folders. Are you over domestic yourself? I would love to divest – if I, if I could just divest myself and have my children take care of all this, I would love it. That would be so great. The $12 that are at stake would be liberated. David Plotz Enterprises, I would love for, for me to be able to sign some documents and stick them in manila folders. This episode of The GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Jeff Sessions was questioned by the Senate Judiciary Committee this week, and Rex Tillerson has been up at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee or Foreign Affairs Committee. I can't remember what they call it these days. Uh, Sessions will presumably be confirmed as attorney general. Tillerson uh, will also presumably be confirmed as secretary of state, although he did take a bit of a beating from Senators Marco Rubio and John McCain, Republicans. So there is a possibility that his nomination could could be at least not as much of a, a of a triumphal acclamation as he would hope. Emily, what did we learn about Jeff Sessions from the Sessions hearings? We learned that <laughs> what did we learn? We didn't really learn very much. I mean, the Democrats decided for reasons that remain mysterious to me and I'm interested in Jamel's thoughts not to really go after him on his record of uh, of civil rights from when he was a US attorney in the 1980s. Um he's exaggerated the role he played in some uh desegregation and other lawsuits the Justice Department brought while he was US attorney and he has defended the role he played in a voter fraud persecution of some black civil rights act 
to this prosecution, inter- not a persecution. A prosecution. <laughs> prosecution. They actually call it, was it a persecution, persecution, but you're right. You're totally right. It was a prosecution of three black civil rights activists in Perry Kelly, Alabama. I wrote about that case and found it quite troubling, primarily as a pr- issue of selective prosecution because he, the prosecution was about absentee balloting and there had been complaints about irregularities and fraud among absentee balloting by white people or by black and white voters for a slate of white and black voters that was like from the white power structure and some, um, a few black candidates who aligned with them. So anyway, all that stuff is part of Jeff Sessions's history, the Democrats didn't hit it very hard. So in some ways, it came into the record more because the Republicans were trying to mount a really big defense. Um, you know, there was some questioning of Jeff Sessions on his immigration record. He's the most, um, most to the right senator on immigration. And I think that is going to potentially play an important role in how immigration policy gets shaped by the Trump administration. A lot of that will also come from the Department of Homeland Security, but the Justice Department and the Attorney General plays a significant role. So we had some airing of these issues and the other doubts and questions uh, civil rights groups have about Jeff Sessions because he has this deeply conservative record. But I didn't feel like the hearings were super edifying. Jamal, what do you think? Well, I have a different question for Jamel. Jamel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <Jeff>. fine. <laughs> no, I mean, Jeff Sessions is a he's a white conservative male and he's you know it's very wounding to face charges of racism i want to know what's in his heart jamel what do you think is in his heart oh no you're not seriously asking that yeah question. he's not seriously asking who cares what's why has that become heart? such a great jujitsu by by the right i don't think it's just by the right i think in general the way race and racism is discussed by white Americans is extremely, if not monomaniacally focused on the content of one's character and whether or not you actually are uh, prejudiced in your heart. So it's entirely natural that the conversation around Jeff Sessions would become would would move in this direction because that is basically, I think, how most white Americans think of racism. If I do not personally hold any racial animus towards anyone, then it is unfair bordering on uh, a smear to suggest that something I've done is racist, which is nonsense. Like the reason we care about racism isn't simply because it makes people feel bad. We care about it because it has material and concrete consequences for people's lives. And in the case of Jeff Sessions, you look at the breadth of his career at every turn, when confronted with the choice of do I do this thing that furthers the cause of racial equality and substantive justice for, for non-whites or do I not do that thing? Jeff Sessions never does that thing. It's like it's it's utterly consistent. And so, you know, for me, that's that's the relevant thing here that like if Jeff Sessions is going to be tasked with leading an agency, which itself was tasked with protecting the civil rights of Americans. And he himself has over the course of what? almost 40 years uh, uh, been on the wrong side of almost all of those battles, then he is wrong for the, for the position. Right. I mean, to me, when I was listening to Susan Collins introduce him and she was talking about how he's had black colleagues um, and is such a nice man, I just thought to myself, like, that is not the criteria. The criteria is what does his record suggest about um, his commitment to the civil rights laws? And, you know, there is a range of conservative approaches to civil rights. And it's 
possible, you know, that Jeff Sessions will not be on the extreme right side of that range, but that's not what his record suggests. And I think the distinction you just made is such an important one because it's, it's got to be about the actions, not about these sort of questions of like, has my character been smeared? The overall strategy of Senate Democrats for Trump confirmation hearings will be to try to pin Trump uh, on the nominee, either in one way, either to get nominees to endorse terrible things that Trump has said or to get them to disavow things that Trump has said and say that they will not support his policy. Uh, in the case of Sessions, w- was there any of that that was relevant, Emily? Did any of that happen? Well, he said, you know, no ban on Muslims. But that's pretty easy because Trump has already backed away from that completely categorical way of talking about it. He didn't seem super excited to right away come in and start bringing a lot of marijuana prosecutions. Um, he said that was going to be harder to deal with as attorney general than it is as a senator. And then he said, you know, he'd recuse himself from any prosecution of Hillary Clinton. But that also seemed like low-hanging fruit because uh, <laughs> Trump has backed away from that, too. I so, won't I pursue mean, politically motivated prosecutions of my enemies. Exactly. That I already, like, judged them guilty of before any uh, investigation was brought. The thing that interests me a little bit is that Sessions really did try to present himself as pro-civil rights before the hearings and at the hearings. And whether, however much that's a distortion of the record, I'm curious about whether he remains committed to that presentation, to that appearance. Because, you know, if he really cares about that, then that would motivate him to moderate his position as he comes in and actually makes decisions about how to handle these incredibly important Cases that affect employment and education and voting rights is a huge one that's going to very early on um, appear on his desk. So we'll see. That's a really interesting question because the line about presidential candidates is always, well, look at what presidential candidates say during their campaigns because that's actually how they try to govern. I'm not sure that applies for for, uh, people being confirmed in the Senate. I think it may be a negative indicator that if you look at what people say in their nomination hearings – I bet it I'd be interested to see whether there is a strong connection between what people avow at their confirmation hearings and what they actually then do in judicial office or in executive office. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking about because I think Sessions is going to get confirmed. And I think part of the problem here is that Sessions does hold these views that are detrimental to the cause of advancing voting rights or civil rights. Those views are also increasingly very partisan, right? So like if you are a typical Republican politician, not just in the South, but nationwide, you probably support strict voter ID laws, right? And so if you you not only do you probably support strict voter ID laws, it's very unlikely that you have any substantial black constituency. Right. So, you know, you can blast sessions for all this substantive stuff, but at a certain point it does just look like regular Republican stuff right. in part because the right. Republican Party's platform on this has become very polarized and racialized. Right. Um, and so it's like, if this were 30 years ago, I mean, 30 years ago, in fact, right, like Jeff Sessions couldn't get through Strom Thurmond's judicial uh, committee in part because, because Strom Howard Thurmond- Because Heflin, the Democratic senator from Alabama, wouldn't right. vote for him. Exactly. And it was a lot because of that Perry County voter fraud prosecution. Hal Heflin, who was no progressive. Right, but he <laughs> had black, he, he relied on black voters right. to win office. But there's just, there are no white, 
Republican politicians in the South who are responsive to black constituencies in any substantial way, which is like remarkable. That is in some sense a return to what Southern politics looked like in the 30s and 40s, where you had white politicians, white Democrats in this case, with large black constituencies, but were not politically responsive to them whatsoever. You could argue, though, that when you look also at the growing Hispanic population, that there is some reason for them to start to think about being responsive to these constituencies. And I wonder how that will play out um, on, in the area of immigration rights, which is connected. But even when you look at that, I mean, I think someone did, did studies on that a couple of years ago, the number of House Republicans who have significant numbers of Hispanic voters in their districts and are not in lock safe dif- districts is tiny. So, right. I was guess I was thinking more of like senators, governors, and the changing demographics of places like Georgia and Arizona. Yeah. But I'm sure that you're right, and this is you know now we could start a conversation about redistricting and gerrymandering. I would have thought that if you're a Georgia senator or a North Carolina senator, or maybe even a Mississippi senator or governor, that you can't be completely cavalier about black votes. You have to pay some attention. The black population is such, and then combined with a sort of a white progressive minority that and you have to at least you, you can't you can't be a hundred percent paying no attention uh, i think <laughs> can i mean and yet look at north carolina and how completely polarized it's been right the combination of low turnout for these elections and the fact that even with this you know north carolina is almost an exceptional state because it has like a white progressive minority of like you know between 30 and 35 percent in your florida's in your in your South Carolinas and certainly in your Alabamas, Mississippi's, Louisiana's, you're looking at north of 90% of white voters backing Republican. So it's sort of like, you know, who cares what the black people in the state think? Right. Let's go on to Rex Tillerson. Rex Tillerson, unfortunately, doesn't seem to know anything, <laughs> uh, which surprised me because he seems like he's a smart guy, but he doesn't, uh, he doesn't know anything about Cuba. He didn't know anything about Exxon Mobil lobbying um, on Russia's sanctions. Didn't know anything about the Iran deal, really. Didn't know much about what Putin was doing in Syria or, or Putin's murder of political opponents. Didn't know anything about China. Not not too well informed about Saudi Arabia. It's a little. Um, it's almost like it's almost like he was pretending not to know things, Jamal. You know, I actually thought it would be the reverse, right, that Sessions would have the hard time and Tillerson would be the walk. But Tillerson seems to be profoundly unprepared for answering even these basic questions. And then he he also faces like legit opposition or at least like harsh questioning from Republican senators. So Marco Rubio basically was like going on a tear against him about Russia and Putin. And Tillerson just has no response and in fact has said things that are just like not true right like did you uh if i remember this correctly one of the questions uh was something like did you lobby against sanctions right. and taylor was like no and it's like like the guy was like no you you called me right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I got that phone call dude like don't tell don't tell me you don't know me don't tell me this didn't happen this gets to the difference between a senator and a ceo so ceo uh especially a company very hierarchical like fuck you all company like ExxonMobil doesn't really get is never really asked hard questions. The CEO is never really subject to interrogation. They're never grilled and is and is not accustomed to actually having to 
deal with it. And so they don't develop the bullshit mechanisms, which is any senator has to develop because any senator like their job is to be able to bullshit anything at all times. That is the number one qualification for being a senator. So Jeff Sessions, you could put Jeff Sessions anywhere in the world. You could put him in a a discussion of Moroccan tribal uh, dance, uh, Moroccan tribal dances. And I'm sure he could he could bullshit a speech about that that you'd be like well you know them yeah sure yeah that's right i mean he's right about the hazara dancing yeah <laughs> and he se- seems like such a congenial fellow too and tillerson just doesn't have he doesn't have that armature he doesn't have that weaponry and so he he's pursued the classic supreme court nominee strategy which is that i don't know anything and i'm just not going to answer anything and if i don't and answer I'll anything i'll be about that once i'm in office yeah yeah strange posture well, he for d- a secretary of state I don't find it that objectionable. I I don't know. I do. I mean, I it, the, the thing about the thing about a, a Supreme Court confirmation hearing is that it, to some extent, like it is difficult to know what issues are going to fall on your plate. Like they extra, there are certain circumstances that may change how you how you feel about something. I mean, like there is there's a little there's genuine uncertainty there, and like what you'll be you'll you'll confront as a justice. But like Secretary of State, there's like there's a package of things that you know you're going to deal with. You know that these things are are happening at this moment. You you sort of know what events look like. You may not be able to answer like questions about minute policy or questions about like particular procedure. But if someone asks you something like, you know, do you agree that Vladimir Putin has murdered journalists, you should be able to say, yeah, that's the thing that's happened. And the fact that Tillerson consistently says, "Well, I, I I haven't been paying much attention. Like, I have to be in office to to know that stuff." is I think is like troubling. Right, and we also have a norm of um, Supreme Court justices not discussing issues that could come before them in a pending case, um, right. and that's a good norm because we want them to be open minded. They don't. We don't want them prejudging, whereas there's nothing like that for Secretary of State. You want to know what someone's views are and have a sense that they're deeply grounded in these international conflicts. So, David, do you think that he was just obfuscating and bullshitting, or did you come away thinking like, huh, maybe he doesn't know very much at all about some of these places in the world? I think he was. He decided his strategy was going to be, I should not pin myself down to anything. I'm not going to pin myself down. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to tip my hand about what my policies are going to be. And therefore, the uh, I'm going to kind of concede nothing, admit nothing and say nothing. This was literally what John Roberts did. Right. But in a different professional setting in which the norms are different. And he had his great line about being an umpire calling balls and strikes, which was semi-ridiculous, but worked really well for him. Whereas Tillerson, by refusing to sign on to a lot of the things Rubio wanted him to say, presented a different set of vulnerabilities. I mean, he may get through, but I'm not exactly sure how Rubio and McCain are supposed to justify voting for him based on his performance yesterday. Right. Well, they they might not, but he'll still get through. I mean, no, if they don't vote for him, then that's isn't that the ball yeah, game? Yeah, what do you mean? Well, yeah. that they assumes that no Democrat votes. would vote for him. Oh, that's true. He's always your mansion and your high camps. Um, I'd vote for him. if I were if I were a Senate Democrat, I'd totally vote for him. Seems like Why? I feel because I feel like you know the president. You you give advising consent. The president gets a choice and he's going to pick from a kind of universe of people and the, the uh, in the universe of people he's likely to pick from tillerson seems like a solid b yeah that's that that's actually fair and on that cheery note
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. President Obama gave his farewell speech in Chicago on Tuesday night. Let's listen to a bit of it. If something needs fixing, then lace up your shoes and do some organizing. If you're disappointed by your elected officials, grab a clipboard, get some signatures, and run for office yourself. Show up. Dive in. Stay at it. He used his farewell speech to make the case generally that America moves toward progress, that we're generally going to head in the right direction, that we should continue to believe in democracy and in communal action and involvement and the possibility of change. Uh, It was a full-throated, although entirely unpersuasive, given the catastrophic moment that the country faces speech. But, you know, it clearly is is what he believes in, even though even though there's a looming public policy disaster, teardowns of every policy that he's pursued, and a president who doesn't practice any of the the, the things that President Obama spoke up for on Tuesday night. Let's talk about his political legacy as a politician. Is there any way in which President Obama has changed how American politics works, how Americans think about politics? And then sort of secondly, how has American politics changed while he was in office, which may not have anything to do with what he did, but maybe other circumstances. I'll start, Jamel, around the speech. Why do you think he was being so classy and optimistic? I mean, I think that's generally Obama's style. It has been since he kind of came on the scene in 2004. He has always used a rhetoric of unity, of essential common aspiration of progress. I'll say that this speech... I think was darker. It was sort of like darker, although he was, he sounded uplifting throughout it. The notes about the threats to our democracy certainly were a little discordant with the, the tone of the speech. His argument that racial division and inequality are real threats to the ability of the United States to sustain itself, I think are true. The irony is that that is something that Obama himself almost rejected at the beginning of his presidency. And that seems to be lessons that he's drawn from the experience of being president. I I think sort of to, to get to your questions, David, about how American politics has changed. This is a case where I'm not sure that Obama has changed, but rather he has he has sort of presided over deep-seated changes in American life that are manifesting in our politics and for which he just in a in, in an almost sort of like not disappointing, but like kind of sad way because it's just like not it's not who he is, wasn't equipped rhetorically to to really deal with them. But what, what do you mean he wasn't really equipped rhetorically to deal with them? So like, you know, the one of the things I think is happening in this country is that because of demographic change. Um, and and the rising proportion of non-whites, you're not you're getting you know there's younger whites who are like taller and everything, but you're getting kind of a, 
a recalcitrant white minority um, that still retains disproportionate influence in our politics because of geography. And I don't think there's any real common ground there. I think it's one of the things that you just have to win. And I don't think Barack Obama, I think Barack Obama would reject the premise that this is this minority is recalcitrant. I think he'd say, well, no, no, we have things in common. We're not alien. And my view is that, like, in fact, no, there's like, it's kind of win or lose here. Um, do, you, do you think that they they began that way in 2009? Do you think that, that any of that, I'm going to say recalcitrant, because I, that's how I've learned how to pronounce it. Oh, but well, I like your pronunciation. Recalcitrant. You, recalcitrant. You, might, you, might be, you might be right. That might just be my Latin, my Latin uh, uh, study. It's probably uh, like, you know, the words one mispronounces are the ones one has read a million times. Yeah, that's but true. But not heard that much, right? Like I heard a good friend of mine said chasm the other day. And- it's a great, uh, the example, which is a universal example of the word M-I-S-L-E-D. Misled. Misled. Lots of people think it's misled. I had a college roommate just absolutely like with such ardor argue that it was a different word from misled oh, i didn't wow. I, I, thought th- th- I thought there were two different words too really yeah <laughs> no way really that's awesome what does misled mean i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> i think donald trump definitely misled people he- <laughs> um, yeah he went up to that woman and misled her I forget what I totally forget where we were. Recalcitrant, recalcitrant, <laughs> recalcitrant. Yeah. Do you think that that we were? You, you, because obviously Obama came in two thousand four, and then in two thousand eight with this, you know, we're, you know, mighty God in the blue America, and I don't remember what they do in the red America, but everybody, you know, that we're all one people, and and there's greater commonalities, and we all, I think, a lot of people believe that, and the voting pattern suggested that even. Some Republican people believe that. Do you think that that we were doomed to this division, this partisan division, or that his not necessarily that he caused it, but that his presence as a black man and a black president, a black Democrat, exaggerated those differences and made that partisanship deeper than it would be? You know, were we just headed that way no matter what? There is empirical literature to, that suggests that. Uh... Obama's simple presence uh, racialized politics across sort of like every issue. And so before Obama, you know, people's racial attitudes were mostly just associated with uh, policies that like kind of relate to those, like what you thought about civil rights or all this stuff um, was related to your the levels of racial resentment you displayed. But um, pretty much like with Obama's election and in increasing ways over the course of his presidency, everything from like healthcare and immigration to sort of tax policy developed this sort of racial correlation that didn't quite exist before. And so I think I think there's a case to make that, a strong case to make that just Obama's very presence uh, didn't create but exacerbated existing tensions and divisions. The one thing he did not certainly anticipate, and I, I honestly, I, I, I'm not quite sure I anticipated, was that there was still a substantial number of uh, white Americans who viewed his election with a kind of existential reaction, right? That like this, this represents some profound inversion of how America is supposed to work. Uh, we all sort of note Obama's big away victory, but there's like a lot of evidence that Obama, if, had Obama been a white guy, he would have won that election by uh, a much larger margin than he did. Um, there is like concrete evidence to suggest that his race cost him about four points in that election. That's interesting. To the degree that people expected 
Obama's election to herald any kind of post-racialism or, or healing racial divides, it was pretty much predicated on Obama's rejection of a language of black politics that recognized historical grievance, legitimate historical grievance. And I think, I, I, and I wrote about this for Slate, but I, I do think one of the most noteworthy and important public opinion phenomena that happened in the first year of the Obama, Obama administration was that whole thing with Henry Louis Gates in that his willingness to to defend Gates, to chastise the police officer, then connected to an historical, historically significant set of relationships and events, tanked his approval rating with white voters in a way that has never recovered. Right. And yet, I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't fault him for any of that. That just seems crazy to me. Um, oh, no, he's obviously, he's obviously right. Right. But it's, I mean, it is remarkable. And I think you're right to focus on it. I mean, I had two thoughts when I was listening to him, or I guess I had like a million thoughts. I mean, one was that I felt like, well, I'm also, I mean, I think many people are unconvinced right now by his essential optimism. There is something uplifting about it. It's like listening to Anne Frank, right? Like that lesson, you know, <laughs> of everything. I still believe that people are truly good at heart. I mean, I think he does believe that about the American people. And um, he sees what's happening now as a step back that we're going to make it through. And God, I hope he's right. <laughs> because there was something, some somewhat of a relief in that idea. I, I didn't hold it against him for kind of hanging on to that, even though it, it means that his logic isn't completely holding together. Like you said, Jamal, there are these discordant notes because he's making these really alarming points about people's rejection of facts and they're not, uh, you know, really like reaching out past their own boundaries very effectively right now. On the sort of Obama's political legacy, of course, you have Donald Trump ascending the presidency for which you can't really blame Obama. But there's been an, a complete slaughter of Democrats in, at the local and state level of politics. Uh, a thousand fewer Democratic office holders at the uh, state and congressional level than there were at the start of his presidency. GOP majorities in states where they should not have majorities, governorships in states where they shouldn't have governorships. He bears some responsibility for that neglect, surely. Right. And you're actually, this is, um, my, I was going to chat, do my cocktail chatter about this new organization that Eric Holder is supposed to be leading. That's going to be supposedly the Democrats, um, focus on redistricting in 2020 and thinking about how to strengthen the state and local parties and candidates going forward. I mean, this is obviously like should be priority number. I don't know, one and a half for the party. And I think Obama has acknowledged that he didn't put as much energy into this as perhaps he should have. Although I, I mean, he does also point out that the presidency is a big job. Um. <laughs> I think I'm going to, I'm going to push back a little bit against the the premise here, which is that Democrats have done unusually bad under Obama down ballot. Um, so, you know, compared with 2006, Democrats will end Obama's presidency with around 39 fewer House seats, uh, 233 versus 194, three, three fewer Senate seats, 51 versus 48, and then 12 fewer governorships, 28 versus 16. Those are pretty much comparable with previous presidents. So uh, Clinton lost 54 House seats, W lost 45, Nixon Ford lost 44. Um, so true that like- Wait, did you also just say that there are, the Democrats hold 16 governorships? Yes. That's- 
Right, that's but like, a pretty sorry but number. Right. Saying that's in line with historical pattern. Right, well, it's in line with it. You're saying that the the, the, the numbers the, are right. in line, but I I bet if you looked at the, the end absolute, of the absolute the numbers, level is, is very is low. lower than yes. it's been since 2000, right? But like, if we're thinking in terms of relative losses, then what happened under Obama isn't really much different than previous presidents. Some of this is basically the final leg of the South becoming solidly Republican, and that basically wipes out sort of an entire wing of the Democratic Party. Um, there's a lot going on here. And so I just want to push back against the idea that like this is a one-to-one relationship between Obama's interest in politics and political skill and not some mixture. It's been very clear that he did not really care much about the role of party leader. But it's also the case that there are a lot of things happening at the state level and the sub-state level that don't necessarily have much to do with what's coming out of the White House. I want to close this with one last way in which I think I wish that Obama had had a greater effect on politics, which is, so one of the things that's quite remarkable about him, you have an eight-year presidency, not a whiff of scandal of any serious scandal, no personal scandal, no uh, financial scandal, there have been no serious, uh, you know, there's things like minor things like Solyndra or, or Benghazi, which I suppose if you, depending on who you are, you might think that's bigger. Really, it's been extraordinarily ethical, cleanly run uh, administration. He behaves with with a dignity and grace and integrity on every occasion. Class. Let's include class and cl- in there. That's a, no, because that's a Donald Trump style word. I don't like that word class. Oh, okay. Uh, so I'm going to reject your word class. He's been presidential in the best possible way. Um, Yet nobody cares. Yet it doesn't matter. No, that's not true. He has a good approval rating. People do care. Like, it doesn't matter what. What's what's your measure of it doesn't matter? Well, that there's been no – that 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 has now been totally devalued. That people people are willing to At they're willing to moment, have a to have a ruffian in the White House. Well, that but I just feel like that's we don't know in the medium to long term whether that is really going to be true. And um, we and Obama wasn't running against Donald Trump, so the notion that that has no value and the country has totally turned its back on all of those qualities just seems wrong to me. Like, why should we buy into that? Okay. All right. Boy, you folded I, up your tent. I mean, I, 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 I'd say I'll split the difference here in that it definitely matters that Obama was very – I think classy is the right word here. It's a very classy president. But – Again, don't use that Trumpian <laughs> word. Jamel and I want to retain the meaning of the word classy and continue to have it as part of our vocabulary. Exactly. Classy is a word that's only used by people who have no class. That's why Donald Trump uses it. So I, uh, I, I. So what did you just call us, David Plotz? <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I have very distinct memories over the past eight years of Republican politicians and Republican activists and all sorts of assorted people blasting Obama for not exhibiting those qualities, for not being presidential, for um, not uh, not living up to what they imagine a president should be like, for, you know, questioning his religious commitments, I mean, so on and so forth. And all, like many, if not all of those same people uh, back Donald Trump for the presidency. And so I think, I think it sort of doesn't matter in the sense that it reveals how much of that was just bullshit. 
when we think of all of these attributes of Obama's, I mean, is this going to come, or is it already, and will it stand for the ultimate example of the proposition that, you know, black people have to be like three times better than white people when they're in roles with power, that, you know, we, that they have to be, they have to hold themselves to the highest standard and yet they still get torn down. I think it's absolutely the case. I think I think Obama absolutely demonstrates that uh, for, for him to have be- even become president, uh, he had to maintain a level of like personal uh impeccability that just like a white politician does not at all. And I, I find it, I don't know how one can dispute that given that the, the incoming president of the United States literally bragged on camera of sexually assaulting people, women. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go to Cocktail Chatter, that one tiny small ray of light in a dark world or potentially yet another ray of darkness in a dark world <laughs> that you wish to share with the GapFest audience jamel what do you got so i watch a lot of movies i think uh, every time i've almost every time i've been on i've talked about movies in one way shape or form and i watch a lot of older movies not necessarily classic movies because older movies what can... about classy movies <laughs> some of them are classy uh, i watched a lot of older movies and I recently discovered, um, and I'm sure other people know about it, but I, it's new to me, a service called Filmstruck, which is an online, like a Netflix for classic movies, and particularly the Criterion Collection. And so last night I bought a year-long membership and promptly began to make a playlist of movies I want to watch. And my playlist is like 40 deep at this point. And some of the films on hand are... My Dinner with Andre, uh, Fellini's Eight and a Half, uh, Truffaut's 400 Blows, uh, the entire kind of uh, season cycle of uh, Yasujiro Ozu, uh, uh, pretty much all the Kurosawa you could watch. I mean, it's sort of a, it's, it's everything you would want to see in the world of classic cinema. And so it's a great service. I really like it. Um, I'm gonna you know spend too much time watching movies even more movies and if you're into movies i would recommend it all right emily what is your chatter i just started reading a book called al tunsi by anton piatagorsky i wonder if i pronounced you did i know anton piatagorsky Oh, right, right. I forgot. This book came to me partly through Hannah. I forgot about that. Anyway, I'm enjoying this book. It's like, I think, a sort of thriller story in which the Supreme Court is prominently featured. I haven't read a huge amount of it yet, uh, but it's pulling me in and um, it's fun. It seems like a good propulsive narrative designed maybe with a particular eye to law nerds like me. So it's coming out in March, I believe. Partially the way through it, I recommend it. So keep an eye out for it. Author again is Anton Piatagorsky. 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 Thank you. First, an update on my weird chatter from last week. So my update is Ian said yes 
Anne Silver and Ian Schreiner are engaged. That was what our chatter was about. <laughs> After further <laughs> reflection and advice from GabFest lawyers, however, we've decided not to subject them to actual further research. Instead, we just wish them every happiness together. So, And we want wedding photos. We want wedding photos. Maybe they'll come on and do a Slate Plus one day. My actual chatter is uh, I'm going to recommend a piece of culture, too, which is the TV show that has preoccupied me for the past week is Peaky Blinders, which is a British TV show about Anglo-Irish mobsters in Birmingham just after World War One. It's The Godfather. It's basically The Godfather as a TV show, but with Anglo-Irish people instead of Italian-Americans. It's these three brothers and a sister struggling to build a criminal enterprise, one a war hero who's being drawn into the business. They're corrupt cops. Like The Godfather, they're lank-haired beauties um, at every turn. They're weddings. It's just awesome. And what's awesome about it is that they haven't chosen to be exact to period. They've given, they've made the language, they've given, they've modernized the language a bit and they've modernized the look. Our gangster heroes, um, led by an actor named Killian Murphy, uh, who's a TV actor you've seen who has the best cheekbones in the world, have this unbelievably awesome sort of menacing haircut. And it's worth watching just for the haircut alone. It is. So uh, is it like violent and gangstery or is it, um, like, kind of light it's violent and gangstery there's not sort of uh excessive violence it's really well acted really gripping and just super fun to watch i'm just like why am i here when i could be watching that our intern is kevin townsend our producer is jocelyn frank steve Lichtai is executive producer of slate podcast andy bowers is chief content officer for panoply we're part of the panoply network check out our entire roster podcast at itunes.com slash panoply our show page is slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Facebook is facebook.com slash GabFest. Twitter is at SlateGabFest. Email address is GabFest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. If you like the show, that really helps us. For Emily Bazelon and Jamel Bowie, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.